This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program, which is operating currently under a unusual circumstance in that as we are before the microphones, really interesting stuff is taking place in the next room on television with the hearing on January 6th. Thus, we're debating at this point whether to do a partial live and partial archival show. We haven't decided yet. We'll see how this goes. By live, we, we really mean current program. We admit we like to sound as though we're live. Hey, wait, we got a call on line two, Doug. Yeah, see what I mean? We especially like the programs we do that are timeless. Uh, this will not be one of those. Then again, maybe it will be, depending on how this evolves. Want to note, by way of Ford promoting, that uh, this correspondent plans to um, take a vacation next month. And so during that interim, we expect that there will be numerous programs that will not be current. At least they won't be using current news items. Mr. Villain is urging me to call in from Mauritius, but we'll see how that goes. So, uh, going through archival material in preparation for what we're going to need to be doing in the future, I came across uh, a lot of good stuff. We have actually filing cabinets full of stuff that has been put aside for this show that hopefully will currently be drug out. How about this particular item, which was um, a summary of 5,000 Great Jokes, a book that I have somewhere, but it, you know, I didn't like most of the jokes. 5,000 of them, but we did pick out some of the gems, at least what we think are the gems, and let's do 10, shall we? From the book 5,000 Jokes, number one, karaoke bars combine two of the world's great evils, people who shouldn't drink and people who shouldn't sing. And a friend of mine has a trophy wife, but apparently it's not first place. And one thing's for sure, the cops don't like it when you yell, do you need some help? especially if you're wearing a Batman costume. How about this one? If dentists earn a living fixing our bad teeth, why would we trust a toothpaste recommended by four out of five of them? Here's one we've always liked. I married Mr. Wright. I just didn't know his first name was Always. I think we've used that one before. Here's one I'm not sure we've used before, but I especially like it. What you should do is buy a parrot and teach it to say, Help! I've been turned into a parrot! And uh, I learn from the mistakes of others who have taken my advice. And where are we? Number eight. The pen may be mightier than the sword, but the smart money is still on the sword. And you have to admit, even Popeye didn't eat his spinach until he absolutely had to. And my personal favorite. My girlfriend said she wanted something that was sparkly, went around her fingers, and could be shown off to her friends. So, I got her an LED yo-yo. And these are good. Let's throw out a couple bonus lines. Such as, I like the concept of altruism, but I have to ask, what's in it for me? And finally, any 12 people who can't get out of jury duty are no peers of mine. All right, some follow-up. On last week's program, we um, cited the meme, noting this is baby Molly. She was born from an embryo that had been frozen 27 years. But if we put baby Molly in a freezer for 27 years, she'll die. Why can you freeze an embryo but not a baby? Because an embryo isn't a living human. 
Mr. Wimlin asked, how many days do you have to freeze an embryo? And the answer appears to be seven. If you have other information on that, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. Here's a stat from my guest last week, uh, which is sort of eating away at us right now. But it uh, shows Cassidy Hutchinson, a picture of her testifying before Congress, which I guess was last week, with the following stats. Tucker Carlson, 3.5 million viewers. Stanley Cup Final 2022, 5 million viewers. America's Got Talent, 6 million viewers. Monday Night Football, 11 million viewers. But Hutchinson's testimony, 13 million viewers. That's right, more than Monday Night Football. And of course, as we speak, or about to speak, or maybe just spoke, I don't know, apparently some proud boys are in the, uh, in the House chambers testifying about what happened. And I have to like the meme that was sent a few days ago. And by the way, speaking of memes, when they first had this term meme that was floating around, I don't know, what, 15 years ago, they said it will be like one unit of culture, kind of like a gene is one unit of inheritance, which I always thought was stupid beyond words. But it's sort of boiled down at this point to like a little caption that's being sent around that's supposed to catch on. Anyway, in this meme that was sent around that's supposed to catch on, it shows a picture of these... Um, burly-looking fellows wearing flak jacket and protective gear. And it says, among ranchers, the term proud boy means a gelding that thinks he still has his balls. And no, we can't vouch for that, but we, we sure do like it. And yeah, any ranchers out there, feel free to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. And speaking of the proud boys who got a lot of bad press for supposedly, well, I guess they literally did break up a meeting I think in Alameda County, where a bunch of parents were having in the public library, drag queens show up to do readings for their children to embrace diversity, I, I guess was the goal. As a general rule, we don't, we don't favor showing up in libraries and busting up readings of books. We think that's really a, a terrible idea. However, in the wake of the bad publicity surrounding the, the Proud Boys and, and their bad behavior, the, the event or at least an event, I guess, at the Castro Valley Library in Castro Valley. They, they held another such event and um, had children come in and books were read to them. The photograph of the person doing the reading I thought was rather striking. I looked at it and thought, well, were I a father, I, I'm not sure I'd be happy having my children attend this event. And I think what I'm going to do at this point is, is query the first father I can find, and ask him what his reaction to the picture of the person is. I have a father right here. Mr. McMillan is a father. Are you not, sir? Am I under oath? Yes. Yes, I am. I lied. You're not under oath. I still am. All right. All right. Well, then what I'm going to do at this point, and this is unrehearsed, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to show you the picture of the person doing the reading just because I'm curious what your reaction will be. Are you ready, sir? All right. Here we go. Here's the person who did the reading at the Castro Valley Library. Nice. As long as he's wearing pants, I don't care. Well, all right then. To me, the person in the picture looks like kind of a cross between John Wayne Gacy and a Teletubby. It's not a good look. It is not a good look. However, to each their own. He's not committing a crime by what he's doing. All right, we're going to leave it at that. I just want to say that I don't think there was a great disservice done to the public by perhaps not holding more of these events. 
And while it's true, you should never judge a book by its cover, I, I just have some reservations about books that are read to preschoolers and kindergartners that concern dressing in drag. I don't know, somehow to me this seems more confusing than someone reading to kids that maybe was dressed as Daffy Duck. I do think I need to add, though, that for many, many years in San Francisco, there was a man, I believe his name was Charles Pierce, who was a noted female impersonator that everybody said was something to behold. I guess not only was he a great impersonator, he had a hell of a voice, or she had a hell of a voice. And by God, since we're soliciting feedback from listenership, let, let's say if you saw Charles Pierce in action, drop us a line. While you're at it, let us know what you thought of him at info at radioparallax.com. All right, since we're perilously close as we start this program into putting one wheel in the sand, if it's not there already, let's jump to some indisputable good news, which in this case is something remarkably simple. I was driving across the country last night and arrived home around midnight. And as I got out of the car, I was greeted with a familiar sound. Yes, the crickets were out. I hadn't heard them until recently, but they were such a standard part of summer nights in the past that I was just glad to see they're still on duty. As we talked about in this program in the past, there has been a global decline in insect populations, which has many people concerned with good reason. Uh, New Scientist magazine, I would note, asks the citizen scientists who's pondered the drop in the number of bugs splattered on the car windshield to try and quantify this for scientific purposes. If you live in the UK, we're not sure about the US, but if you live in the UK, you can directly involve yourself in the Bugs Matter project and they will give you a splatometer, a sampling grid, which you can stick to the license plate of your vehicle. From that, they will work out the number of splats per mile. And in thumbing through archival materials of late, I, I came across something that was sort of horrifying. Well, no, it is horrifying. It was a little chemical handbook copyrighted by the Vesicol Chemical Corporation in 1965. It was titled, How to Control Insects. We probably should say, control should be in quotes. A more apt title might have been, How to Spray Insects with Poison. And, it was ma- and of course, the poison in question was chlordane. The pamphlet has a, a very handy little dilution chart showing you how to mix the chlordane with water before you spray it all over your landscape. And it also <laughs> had a section titled, How to Choose and Use the Right Chlordane Insecticide. I guess there's various dilutions of it. Step number one was identify the insect. The handbook shows you all these different insects with with nicely drawn pictures and descriptions of where you would find the bugs before it tells you how to murder all of them. And wouldn't you know it, right on page 17, we have crickets. You know that they do damage. They can eat foliage, they can eat flowers, and they can eat the tender growth of plants. And since they might be guilty of some of these infractions, the solution is kill them, kill them with chlordane, kill them all. Well, luckily, they didn't kill them all. Some of them are still around, and some of them are still chirping, and thank God for that. And I have a relative item in my, in my left hand, which I think I'm just going to put off to another day, and instead use the item that's in my right hand, which is a rather whimsical piece of calculation done, on that award ceremony known as the Grammys. We've tended to mock such award programs on this show in past years because it's pretty clear that um, 
the main factors that go into choosing an award winner are generally not, I would say, merit. Although, of course, that is always subjective. But, you know, I think we can have more objectivity in this than, than, than one might suppose. For example, surveying the history of who has won the Grammys, we, we took a look at some prominent bands. Well, I guess you'd say the Beatles and the Rolling Stones are prominent bands, and, and I think we'll throw in Elvis on the equation. You might ask yourself, how many Grammys did the Beatles, Elvis, and the Rolling Stones amass in their careers? I guess the Rolling Stones' career is still going on. Some would say that anyway. We might not. Well, I'm sure you can't guess, but the answer is the Beatles won four, although one apparently was for the Rubber Soul album cover. Elvis won three, but they were all in the gospel category, and the Rolling Stones have won four. We're not sure how you break those down. But taking this big three, Beatles, Elvis, Stones, we come up with 11 Grammys between them. Now, if we compare this to, say, Eminem, who has won 15, we'd have to scratch our head a little bit. Even the artist known as Lil Wayne has won five, which puts him ahead of the Beatles and Elvis and the Rolling Stones. Even Will Smith, yes, quote, actor, unquote, rap star, I guess if you want to count getting jiggy with it as a rap hit, I, I really don't know. But anyway, he, he is a pretty good Muhammad Ali impersonator. I'll give him that. But Will Smith has won two Grammy Awards, which wouldn't you know it, is two more than that were won by Queen, The Who, The Beach Boys, The Doors, The Grateful Dead, Jimi Hendrix, or Bob Marley, all of whom have won zero. So anyway, if we take those seven and add the Beatles, Elvis, and Rolling Stones and throw out the Rubber Soul Grammy for the cover, we have 10 Grammys in aggregate for 10 groups. Yes, all the groups just mentioned and individuals just mentioned, one apiece. Kanye West, on the other hand, has won 22. Jay-Z has won 23. And Beyonce has won 28. Thus, for those three, Kanye, Jay, and Beyonce, they're averaging about 24 per person, as opposed to one per person for the other 10 mentioned. Lady Gaga, at nine, just about equals the total of the 10 aforementioned. To which all I can say is, it's just not right. I suppose it does break down to specialized categories, you know, like Elvis's gospel and, 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 you know, polka artists. Evidently, Jimmy Schur, described as a polka artist, has won 18 Grammys. And in the end, I don't really know what the point about griping about this is. I, I don't know. I just, I just felt like griping about it. And when you know it, because we have a radio program, we can do it on the air. And if we weren't starting out spacey enough, let's go up into space and take a look at what we can see, at least through the eyes of the James Webb Space Telescope. NASA has finally revealed some of its um, images, which they've sharpened up. Some pretty impressive stuff out there. Um, they said that they'd be able to take a look at exoplanets, and I guess they can. The James Webb Space Telescope took a look at one particular exoplanet, one that's like a thousand light years away, and was able to gather data describing what's in the atmosphere. And if you're keeping score, the Webb's spectrum includes the distinct signature of water, along with evidence for clouds and haze. It said this observation demonstrates Webb's unprecedented ability to analyze atmospheres hundreds of light years away. Yeah, I guess. It's going to be some cool stuff coming from that, that mission. 
although it may not shed light on, a, on what was headline news in New Scientist magazine. And this is the kind of headline you just have to like, which is, the universe is weirdly lopsided. Article by Leah Crane's subheadline is, two analyses of a million galaxies show that their distribution may not be symmetrical, which means our understanding of the cosmos is incorrect. You know, I, I bet the James Webb will shed some light on all this. We have to admit, we have not lost any sleep over the fact that the universe appears to have more stuff on one side than it does on the other. But if something comes to this, we'll, we will try and be objective and report on it. We are sad to note that another NASA mission got put on hold last week, the Psyche mission to a very oddball metal asteroid of the same name was supposed to launch in September or October. But JPL was several months late in delivering its software for navigation, guidance, and control, and don't ask us why. And, um, well, engineers said we just ran out of time to test it. All this means that the spacecraft probably will not arrive at Psyche, if all things go well, until 2029 or 2030. Now, how it is you have a piece of metal, I mean, dense metal out there in the asteroid belt, well, it's speculated this must mean that a proto-planet started to form, it got hot, the heavy stuff melted and went to the center, and then somehow it got torn apart. When you're looking at things like solar system formation, uh, I think the word somehow <laughs> probably comes up a lot. Because um, the speculation on how it is a giant gas cloud, a cloud of gas and dust manages to condense down into stars and planets, I think is not that well worked out. For the longest time, they were saying, well, you know, at first there was all this goo out there, dust, space, and it just started condensing. It started condensing together like dust bunnies, and the dust bunnies got bigger. And no, we're not sure how the dust bunny theory is going to develop into a, a metallic asteroid remnant. And, um, well, like, like the rest of us, we're just going to have to see how this unfolds. And speaking of space, yours truly was taking in one of the original Star Trek episodes of late. And I must confess that most of the ones I've watched have seemed, well, shockingly lame. It's quite apparent they did not have a lot of money for special effects and special situations, so they decided to skimp by just having, you know, the same, same half dozen actors appear in the same few sets and make the best of it. When I was a kid, and, and I, guess, I guess extending up to the present day, I always kind of wondered, well, how, how fast those spacecraft able to go. I mean, the Starship Enterprise, you know, under full power, warp speed. How fast is it going to make these adventures possible? It better be pretty fast. Because if you wanted to leave Earth and say, go out to Beetlejuice, you know, taking seven centuries to get there at light speed is just, just not going to work. So science fiction writers like Isaac Asimov right on down the line all decided that to make this thing plausible, we've got to go faster than light, even though no one's sure how anything can go faster than light. Yes, there's talk of wormholes and negative energy and all that, but I don't know. But in the Star Trek episode, evidently um, entities taking human form from the Andromeda galaxy wanted to carjack the USS Enterprise and use it to go back to Andromeda. When they first proposed this, Captain James T. Kirk answers with, to the Andromeda galaxy, that would take thousands of years. The alien says, no, Captain, we can modify your, your, your spaceship and we can, we can do it in 300 years, which frankly impressed Spock, whose line was something along the lines of 300 years for intergalactic travel. That's remarkable. But I decided to get the calculator out and just see how remarkable this, this works out to be. Andromeda Galaxy, something like 2.5 million light years away. 
If it's taking you thousands of years to get there, let's just say 2.5 thousand years, 2,500 years, which means that at full speed, the Starship Enterprise is probably going 1,000 light years in a given year, 1,000 times the speed of light. Now, the aliens at, boost, at reducing that number down to 300 from 2,500 only were getting it going eight times faster. I think you can see the problem with this. But as much as we would like to go, boldly go, where no man has gone before, or no person either, we have to admit that even at a thousand times the speed of light, it's going to be a long journey just in the local neighborhood. To get the aforementioned Beetlejuice, for example, you're going to need like seven or eight months. And while some might say that it's worth the wait, we think that's just too long. <laughs> Remember that cosmonaut the Russians put up a couple decades ago and let him orbit the Earth for like a year? I don't know the details, but I know that he came back a changed man. And I say, not for the better, comrades. For starters, he and all the people that have been up for many months, when they get back to Earth, really can't get up and stand and walk around. I don't know. Personally, I realized a long, long time ago that I do not have the right stuff to be an astronaut. And the primary reason for that can be summarized in three words. Zero gravity toilets. Perhaps you recall one of the great laugh lines of Stanley Kubrick's Immortal 2001, A Space Odyssey. It's a scene where an astronaut is looking very closely at the instructions, what <laughs> were described as the zero-gravity toilet. All right, Mr. Mellon, how much time do we have left? Uh, for this segment, about seven minutes. Okay, we need to put some meat into this, uh, this particular segment. Some listeners no doubt feel at this point they've been eating cotton candy. Let's jump into three items involving Mexico. Item number one, apparently thousands of U.S. citizens particularly from California, are moving to Mexico to escape skyrocketing housing prices and expensive health care costs. Exact numbers are hard to come by, but realtors across Mexico say they've been renting far more properties than usual to Californians who can work remotely and stretch their U.S. salaries. The Week magazine reported that, that one content creator, God, I hate terms like that, a man named Travis Grossi, told CNBC that he was tired of having to just hustle and hustle and hustle. So he left Hollywood, where his one-bedroom apartment costs $1,600 a month, for the Yucatan capital of Merida, where he pays $850 a month for a two-bedroom apartment with a pool. While Mexican realtors are happy, ordinary Mexicans fear they could soon be priced out of their neighborhoods by free-spending Americans. Great. We'll turn Mexico into the Bay Area. And here's a hair-raising item from The Economist, the January 2nd issue. Um, I don't know what to make of this. He claims the studies are showing that there are 100,000 people missing in Mexico as a result of that country being torn apart by its drug wars. Now, we do have to qualify this. Last May, Mexico's Register of Missing Persons, which dates back to 1964, passed 100,000. So this is, didn't happen overnight. But rather grimly, it's noted that between 2006 and 2016, over 2,000 clandestine graves were found in Mexico. Till the 1990s, relatively few Mexicans disappeared, and those who did were often victims of the government itself. Oh, and by the way, we should note the passing of Luis Echeverria, the man widely blamed for the murder that took place of student protests prior to the Mexico City Olympics in 1968. Echeverria later served as Mexico's president, and what do you know, was embroiled in scandals. Anyway, a third item I have here is a fascinating article in Smithsonian Magazine. My guess is that you... We're aware, dear listener, of the Underground Railroad, which helped a lot of slaves escape bondage and move to the North, where they could again, for the most part, gain freedom. 
Of course, there was this little thing called the Fugitive Slave Law that got in the way. But unbeknownst to me, and I'm, I'm, I gather you as well, there was also a southern underground railroad to Mexico. Estimates are that perhaps 30,000 to 100,000 slaves fled north of the Mason-Dixon line, but in the south, particularly Texas and Louisiana, apparently somewhere between 3,000 and 10,000 people made their way across the Rio Grande. Historians have recently uncovered this fascinating tale. The article focuses on Alice Baumgartner, who in 2012 was a Rhodes Scholar studying violence on the U.S.-Mexico border in the early and mid-19th century, stumbled upon some startling data. Violence between American slave catchers crossing the Rio Grande and Mexicans who fought against them. Yes, that's right. Mexican citizens went to bat for the escaped slaves to fight Americans trying to come across the border and snatch them. To quote from the piece, she was particularly struck by the story of Manuel Luis del Fierro of Reynosa in the state of Tamaulipas, who was startled awake by screaming on the night of August 20th in 1850. He threw off the covers, grabbed his rifle, and confronted two men in his living room. One was waving a pistol at his wife's maid, a young black woman named Matilda Hens, who had escaped slavery in Louisiana and made the long, dangerous journey to Mexico and became a valued member of the Del Fierro household. Pointing his rifle at the kidnappers, Del Fierro ordered them to surrender. One got away, but the other, William Cheney of Louisiana, who claimed Hennes as his property under U.S. law, was arrested by the Reynosa police, imprisoned for nearly a month, and sent home empty-handed. The incident was not unusual. Baumgartner discovered that there were four councilmen from the Mexican border town of Guerrero who pursued, shot, and killed a slaveholder who had kidnapped a runaway. In 1851, the residents of another village in the state of Coahuila took up arms to stop a slave catcher named Warren Adams from abducting a black family. Months later, the Mexican army posted a sizable force and two artillery pieces on the Rio Grande to prevent a group of 200 Texans from crossing the border to seize runaway slaves. Think about it. The Mexicans are guarding their border to keep Americans from invading and doing illegal things when they get there. Now, Mexico has not traditionally been noted as, you know, a bastion of, of, of individual rights, but when it became independent, although it retained some form of servitude, it did ban the kind of slavery that was then prevalent in the United States South. The article notes that American runaways were usually granted asylum by the Spanish authorities, this is before Mexican independence, because the American form of slavery was regarded as far more brutal and dehumanizing. In New Spain, slaves were subject to the Spanish crown, not property, and it was illegal to separate husbands and wives or to impose excessive punishments. Anyway, this is such an interesting topic, and we've talked about the fallacy of freedom-loving Texans dying at the Alamo in previous shows, and I think we should probably do it again and tie this into this newly discovered fact that Mexico stood up for runaway slaves who fled across their border. Let's take a break. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We got some more, I think. Do we have some more? I think we do. I think we do. We're not, gonna, we're not sure till we take the break. She ran away and I wonder 
Come on,